0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to a TVO podcast.
0: Hi, I'm Colin Ellis, and this is On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. This week's doc looks at how a Canadian experiment from the 1970s has changed our understanding of addiction. When I think about addiction, I think about the work of one of my favorite Canadians, Bruce Alexander. He showed that rats raised in an enriched environment are far less likely to take drugs than rats raised in a barren or desolate environment. And so, We thought we'd bring that uh, idea to the human laboratory.
2: The easiest thing is to blame the drug. If they weren't using that drug, their lives would be all together. I need help, man. I'm like really part-time. And it's very hard for people to kind of go to that deeper level. I wanted to reinvigorate this experiment from the 70s, so I decided to make a documentary um, where we go to the worst place in the world to do drugs and the best place.
0: That's director Shawnee Cohen discussing his new doc for Vice Studios, Rat Park. He and co-producer Rachel Brown travel to the Philippines, Portugal, and the United States to examine each country's approach to drug use. In the Philippines under President Rodrigo Duterte, drug use is basically a death sentence. In Portugal, on the other hand, hard drug use has been decriminalized, which has reduced drug-related deaths but come at other costs. Meanwhile, the United States is still reeling from the opioid crisis. Much like the experiment, they found that living in conditions were a major factor in drug addiction, along with a bunch of other factors. Here's Rachel Brown.
1: When we're talking about human society, a lot of people point to the fact that it's not the drug necessarily that is the problem when it comes to addiction and, and the harms that can come about when it comes to drug use. It's things like unemployment, lack of opportunity, poor housing, all of these sort of bigger social issues that are more important and that should be more, uh, that that should be taken more seriously when we're having these discussions.
0: So let's have a discussion. Here's Shawnee Cohen and Rachel Brown. Shawnee, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, Why did you call the film Rat Park?
2: Rat Park's actually the name of an experiment that uh, happened in the 1970s. So there's a psychologist, his name's uh, Bruce, Bruce Alexander, um, very smart man. And, and he wrote a book recently called The Globalization of Addiction. And um, in a nutshell, I guess I'll just jump into the, the experiment. So he, you take rats and, and you have them in an isolated cage. They have the option to do water or heroin. Um, in isolation, they gravitate towards The heroin until they essentially die. And he didn't, I mean, this was kind of the prolonged thought in psychology um, when it comes to drug use that the drug was responsible for, um, you know, for for addiction. So he didn't believe that. And I think what Bruce wanted to do was turn addiction on its head. and, And he decided to come up with something called Rat Park, which is essentially a bigger cage, um, more like a utopia for rats, where they can play, they can have sex, they can raise each other's children. And the same thing happened where he would take water and then heroin or morphine at one end of the cage. And he found that when they were in Rat Park and they had more access to, you know, being social, they would do much less um, of the drugs than in isolation. And and I kind of like this idea metaphorically. So um, I wanted to, you know, kind of, reinvigorate this experiment from the 70s. So I decided to make a documentary um, where we go to the worst place in the world to do drugs and the best place. And I found that it kind of worked.
0: Rachel, rats, humans, very different. How do you, I guess, find a, a, like a commonality between the way rats respond to drugs and or morphine and uh, the way humans do?
1: Well, I think the the metaphor that the experiment presents is really important you know bruce talks a lot about how you can't think about drug use and addiction without considering the environment that a person is in um so when we're talking about human society a lot of people point to the fact that it's not the drug necessarily that is the problem when it comes to addiction and and the harms that can come about when it comes to drug use. It's things like unemployment, lack of opportunity, poor housing, all of these sort of bigger social issues that are more important and that should be more, uh, that that should be taken more seriously when we're having these discussions. So it's all about the environment that we're in. And Bruce's experiment has formed the basis for a lot of science around human drug use. So, you know, Carl Hart is a psychologist in the film and he's really taken this, this experiment by Bruce, and has shown that it it applies to to humans as well that we're talking about environmental factors as as probably one of the most important things to consider when we're talking about addiction and drug use
0: and, and you said environment, you mentioned like low unemployment uh, I guess poor neighborhoods. I, but you know, I mean, wealthy people as well use drugs. So I mean, is that not an environmental factor? how do you I guess how does that factor into the experiment?
1: Yeah, and when we're talking about en- environmental factors, there are things to consider, like drug laws, harsh, criminalization and what the impact of that is. It's not based on science. It's not based on pharmacology. It's not evidence-based to to criminalize drugs. And when you have these laws that are in place, you look at who they disproportionately target. It's people from poor and marginalized communities who are predominantly targeted by these drug laws. Um, So when we're talking about the environment, we're not just talking about societal social factors. We're talking about drug laws and how they
0: impact people as well. Hmm. Shawnee, how much attention did the Rat Park experiment receive when it was released?
2: When it was released, not that much. I think... um it was in a couple journals. I don't know if you can correct me on that, Rachel, but I don't think it really hit its stride until about 20 or 30 years later when you begin to see the beginning of, you know, the opiate crisis and and overdose crisis happen. So, um, yeah, I would say, unfortunately, it didn't get that much notoriety well, I think in the beginning.
1: Bruce had a hard time convincing people of its merit. It happened around the time of this ramping up of the drug war, this really tough on crime approach. Um You know, especially in the States, it was all about this hysteria and paranoia around drugs, heroin, crack, eventually, eventually meth. Um, So... It was hard for people to sort of think that it wasn't just the drug that would just automatically consume you and take over your mind and your brain. So he had a he had a tough go of it, and I, it wasn't accepted into a lot of journals. Eventually, it did get accepted, yeah. but he faced a lot of uh, a lot of criticism. obstacles.
2: Yeah, Yoan Harari he um, had a TED talk a few years ago, and he mentioned it, and I think. Um, He put it so eloquently and and his understanding of addiction, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't necessarily sobriety. It's more about connection. And when he referenced Rat Park, um, I think it kind of made its stride um, in the media again. And, and, you know, uh, hats off to Johan Harari for kind of bringing it back to popular culture. Mm -hmm. His
0: book, uh, Chasing the Screen, Mm -hmm. is excellent for anyone that's interested in the subject. I I highly recommend it. Um, I grew up in the 80s and uh, was told... Just say no. Yep, right? Yeah. That was the slogan. Nancy Reagan. You yeah, know, of like, course. You know, basically, I, guess I think the idea was that no one should ever use drugs right. ever. And I wonder if that if our understanding of drug use has changed since then.
2: I think a little bit. I think, you know, in doing this film, you begin to understand the history of the drug war. And when you begin to understand how... Um, from Prohibition on in the 40s and the construction of the DEA and people like Harry Anslinger, who was essentially a person who, after Prohibition ended, needed to fight a new war. So he just started going after immigrants using cannabis and and going after jazz singers in New York. Billy Holiday, mm-hmm. right? Billie Holiday, yeah. yeah. And, and um, yeah, and, and I feel like <clears throat> that never really stopped up until you get to the 80s where Nancy Reagan is coming up with the slogan, you know, just say no. I remember being at a video game um, parlor in in grade school and I was playing this boxing game and the first thing that came up before you played the game was just say no. (laughs) And so you're kind of inundated with these messages and you're terrified. This is your brain on drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I think they're horrible messages, actually. I think they, you know, they just perpetuate the drug war. And, and you're seeing more violence when it comes to um, drug activity in the world today than ever before. Yeah. So w- clearly, I mean, it, that messaging didn't work. It's proven not to be effective, actually. It actually has quite the opposite effects. You know, kids watch this stuff or hear this stuff and they just want to do drugs. And And yeah, so... I, I will say that I think you're beginning to see a change in attitudes. I think the legalization of cannabis in Canada is wonderful.
0: We're going to talk a bit about the places that you visited. Uh, one last question about Rad Park. Um, you did mention there were some criticisms of it. Has it ever been replicated? Has and, and, and what is its status today?
2: It's a good question. I will say there's... A lot of people who look at the experiment specifically and try to kind of tear it apart for its scientific merits. But, I mean, if you ask Bruce, and we spent a lot of time with Bruce, the, the original inventor of it, I think for him it was more of a metaphor. It was more, you know, what the idea of it represents more so than, I think, you know, breaking down the actual scientific attributes of the, of the experiment. He's convinced it worked, and, you know... And what was interesting when we were looking at the original experiments in the photos, how seriously he took it, you know, there was some technology he used with measuring the amounts of morphine that the rats were ingesting um, that were quite impressive. You know, like, I think there was even lasers involved. There was like a trapdoor, door. And, and um, that really, like, so I think people look at the experiment, and they think it was like this kind of hokey thing. But no, it was, it was an actual, um, you know, rigorous scientific thing.
0: Well, let's let's talk about Manila first, because I think this is the most extreme case of um, the drug war that I've ever seen. Maybe Mexico next, uh, second <laughs> second worst. Um, but wh- how would you, I guess, characterize the drug problem in the Philippines? First of all, it's it's
2: traumatic. I think is the word, and I feel there's a sense of. Um, I don't know what I'm looking for, but kind of disbelief when you land in terms of how people and the government view um, ingesting illegal substances or any substance in your body for a matter for you know, when we got off the plane, I remember getting into our fixer's van and I rolled down the window to have a cigarette and he told me to do the window up and not smoke because you can get arrested for smoking. Um, in public. in public in the car. And, and I, and so I knew exactly what wow. I was dealing with <laughs> right when we landed. So I would say, you know, so much of what you're seeing in the, in the Philippines now and Manila, where we were has to do with this brutal, you know, leader who, for some reason, has viewed all drug users and, and people who sell drugs as an enemy of the state. Um, I don't think in this context we've ever seen someone with such, you know, a crazy radical view before in power. I mean, Duterte De was essentially a small-town mayor um, who rose to becoming the president of a country, and, and he made all these, like, populist promises at election, and the, you know— killing the drug war was one of them. And, and what's kind of tragic about the situation is not so much that he's in power and he's kind of conducting these extrajudicial killings. It's that, you know, the country really supports him. And that's what I found interesting as well. I mean, they're, you know, it's, it's a country that's kind of in a state of awareness and they're just now understanding what this all means. But I found the level of education when it comes to drug use in general was really low. We went to a harm reduction meeting there, one of the first in the country, and it was surprising to see the audience not know the difference between like cocaine and caffeine, and what meth was. So it's also very when it comes to drugs, an uneducated um, population. Yeah, there's so, a lot of myths ar- around yeah, drug use 100%. too that float around. So when you have a president saying all drugs are bad, and people have no idea what that means, and they just feel like, well, well whatever drug I do is kind of illegal, it, it creates for like this. Traumatic situation.
0: Rachel, did you meet people who uh, support Duterte and support his approach to to drug users like this?
1: Yeah, the big example that comes to mind is the funeral parlor owner that we hung out with. Um, I mean, he has a financial uh, incentive, I guess, I guess because his business is going. Up. Oh yeah, he says there's been at least a thousand uh, victims of the drug war that he's you know been involved with uh, burying. Um, so. There's people like that that say Duterte is doing the right thing. Of course, we want a drug free nation. Why would anyone question that? And we're going to do that by any means possible. So it was shocking to to hear that mentality. And actually, one thing I was thinking yesterday is that we actually shot another film in Sault St. Marie mm-hmm. in about uh, the opioid uh, addiction issue there. And the paramedic told us he comes across people all the time who who say, like, why do you keep reviving these people who are overdosing. A lot of people just say, let them die.
0: The, the main targets of this drug war there are, it seems to me, users. But right. I wonder if there also are traffickers also being attacked, like drug dealers, like wh- wh- like who's basically being killed here?
2: Um, it's a little complicated. I, a lot of people think, you know, you can get shot on the street just for using drugs. It's, it's not that simple. Um, there's a list, if you're on this list, um, after a certain amount of time, you know, there's a death squad that will co- potentially come after you. Um, yeah, but I mean, if you talk to the main character in the film, Vincent Goh, who is this photojournalist who's been documenting everything for forever, he kind of feels the bigger players that bring in, um, you know, shabu, methamphetamines, and these drugs kind of go on unchecked. So it's as kind of, you know thing that's not really talked about, and you don't see so many arrests for the bigger shipments. Um, Yeah. There was even rumors that D'Irte's, was it son was a drug dealer, which I found really interesting. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you have, I mean, you have these high-level traffickers that are bringing in meth and, and, as they call it, shabu. They're not being touched. They're not being convicted. They're not being charged let alone being shot um, or killed. So you look at who's being targeted, it's disproportionately poor marginalized communities, and Manila has some of the poorest communities in the world. They're the ones that are being targeted for drug use or even suspected of using drugs. There's no due, due process, and it's it's... It's mind-boggling.
0: And you were there when one of these killings happened, right?
2: Yeah, we were literally filming another interview. And during that interview, someone was uh, shot a couple hundred meters behind us. Then Oh, my brother, because sometimes Someone just shot you.
0: Someone
2: just shot you. What's his face? kami are going to die going to so it was, yeah, it was, it was tragic. I mean, it, what was interesting when we got there, um, we were the first on the scene and the police came shortly after. Um, the police started filming us and that kind of worried me. But you begin to recognize these little nuances of when people and how people are killed. I didn't realize this, but a lot of people that use drugs are executed between 5 and 6 o'clock. And the reason that happens is because traffic is just... Um, insane during rush hour and it takes forever for police and you know other officials to arrive at a scene so um yeah it was it was very interesting to kind of roll up on that situation and and see someone kind of bleeding out on the street and and yeah and what was interesting too was like how many children and how many people are around the situation and it just didn't phase them because it happens so often so um that's kind of the tragic thing too it's you know people are just so used to it and they just accept it as a part of life.
0: Well, on the other side of the spectrum, you have Portugal, which you mentioned earlier, decriminalized the use of all drugs in, um, I guess, 2001 it was? Yeah. How has this worked out for them? Rachel, maybe start us off there.
1: You talk to officials there and you talk to people who use in Portugal and they say that it's not a perfect model. It's not a silver bullet that's solved everything. And there's still a lot of stigma when it comes to drug use. Um, but overall, overdose deaths have plummeted by 80% um, since the height of their own kind of opioid crisis in the in the 90s. And they had some of the highest HIV transmission rates in Europe. Um, so they've really been able to deal with um, public health matters um, and also keep People alive because of this. It's reduced stigma to some extent. Um, But shifting it from the criminal justice file to the health file has really just made treatment easier. It's made it easier to access health care for a lot of people. So there's a lot of pros to this. But I think one thing I will say is that the way that they have approached drug policy hasn't really changed or evolved. A lot since 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that can be improved. They just opened their first supervised consumption room, a very small kind of setup, which is even behind us in Canada, where we have supervised consumption sites. So it's it's worked out for them. And it's definitely a model that, that people look to around the world as something that can help us as we're in this opioid crisis now. Um, but I think they still have some things to improve.
0: Are other countries looking at the Portuguese model?
2: Oh, for sure. You're seeing... I mean, I think what the Portuguese model taught a lot of people was that harm reduction really works. And it's interesting when you're, you know, in the city and you're hanging around with users and basically a harm reduction van with methadone just pulls up to someone's neighborhood and they can get the access they need. Um, Yeah, you're seeing... I think I agree with Rachel in that they started something that was kind of brilliant and they didn't, I think progress it that much. And I think there's many reasons for that. But at the end of the day, um, they kind of proved that decrim worked. And it's the exact opposite of Manila, where, like we talked about earlier, um, it's the bigger users they were able to go after. And and it's like, Portugal's a port city, so a lot of heroin and drugs come in from all over the world. And that's, you know, so we talked to one of the police chiefs there. And yeah, it's, I mean, a great test for um, understanding if it's working or not is no one in the country wants to go back, especially the police, because now the police can focus all their energy on a million dollars and up these bigger busts.
0: Could you just uh, define what harm reduction means? I guess what's the philosophy behind it? How does it exactly work? Yeah,
2: um, yeah I mean, uh, there's different ways to describe harm reduction. It's it's really just meeting people where they're at. If you think of AA and the idea that a lot of um, addiction therapy or ways to get off drugs were predicated, especially in the 30s and 40s and 50s, all the way through the drug war, with this idea of just say no abstinence. Don't do drugs. Just say no. You should never do it. And through science, it's kind of been proven that that doesn't work. Like, you just can't quit and expect someone to never do drugs again or not do drugs. What harm reduction kind of means is that, you know, let's meet someone where they're at. Let's provide Um, methadone, which could be a substitute for heroin. Let's just try to not punish someone for using drugs and slowly um, introduce the idea where they need help. But at the same time, um, they're not going to get in trouble or they're not going to be ostracized for using. So, yeah, do you want to add to that? Yeah. And it's, you
1: know, it's things like needle exchange. It's things like Naloxone—it's ways to help people reduce the harms associated with drug use, um, and also make society safer. Um, just very basic programs that you can help people access to more, to, so that they can more safely use and that they can be kept alive. It's, you know, it's pretty simple.
0: One of those people that you meet where they're at is uh, named Tiago.
1: I began using drugs at sixteen, smoking ash. Seventeen, LSD. Uh, Eighteen, heroin. I just tried not to get addicted because heroin you must learn to get addicted. 1920 um, uh, sniffs cocaine. 22 smokes cocaine.
2: Ooh, things change. <laughs> After that,
0: all together. Woohoo! And sleeping pills, then depression. How did you meet him and what, is, what, is his, um, what does yeah. he do?
2: We met him through. Um, Uh, One of our fixers, actually. And I I kind of like Tiago because when you see him using drugs in his studio while he's working um, and you realize that this is someone who is a productive member of society, um, you kind of get this impression that while he's using drugs and doing work... um, the nuance between someone who's doing that or maybe writing a novel and having a glass of wine is just one of nuance and context. Mm. So I like this idea that he was, you know, not someone that you'd necessarily expect to be using every day. I mean, he had his own problems. But at the end of the day, um, this is someone who's been able to survive in his system through harm reduction and through all these other, you know, things that the government provides for him. And And I mean, he... He still had. I mean, his views on drugs were so liberal; it was intense. I think he was also someone who was more interested in Portugal taking it a step further and completely legalizing. And his big problem wasn't so much that, you know, he was doing drugs, but he was paying a lot for them. And, you know, it's still, you know, a significant black market. There's still a significant black market in, in Portugal. So when he was buying drugs, it could sometimes get dangerous. So he kind of felt like Portugal should take it a step further and provide safe um crack and, and other drugs for him at a you know at a price that was affordable for everyone. And when you think about that, it, it was just you know it was just so different than than someone who was completely
0: terrified of manila doing drugs and could get shot. His his drug was, was crack, you said? He did so he did a lot
2: of drugs. He uh, uh crack and heroin were his true drugs. Yeah.
0: It's hard to imagine um a society where you could buy that yeah. at the same place you get you know, your groceries. Like, I just couldn't. (laughs) I mean, and and that's the
2: big question, right? Right. Like, eventually in our lifetime, if drug use or drugs become decrimmed or legal, how do you kind of set up a system? No one knows this, but how do you set up a system where cocaine or heroin are available for the people who want it but also make society safe? And, And that's kind of, you know... You know, has one of the characters in the film puts it, the $64,000 question.
0: Right. Well, the last place uh, we'll talk about uh, before we wrap up is uh, Palm Beach, Florida. And um, you, like you said it's Trump's backyard. How bad is the opioid crisis there?
2: I, I wouldn't say at this point it's any worse than other places in the U.S. I think Palm Beach specifically has improved a lot because um, they went through the gamut of... Dealing with the crisis from pill mills, and you know, ten years ago to like Pardue Pharma to you know um, fentanyl. So I think they've experienced a lot. They've went through a lot of trauma, and now some of the best harm reduction workers and, and people in the world are there dealing with it. So um, yeah, I mean, in terms of if it's any better or worse than other places in, in the U.S., I would say probably not anymore. It, it used to be, but now. Um, I think there's other places in America that are probably in, in in worse situation.
1: Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the film talks about Justin, our our main harm reduction worker in Palm Beach. He and his team have last year reversed more than 300 opioid overdoses. It's a very small team. Um, so they've been able to do that. And now Palm Beach County is one of the only places in in the U.S. where overdose deaths are decreasing because they've – said, okay, we need to get naloxone out there. We actually need to start taking harm reduction seriously. Um, even though they're, they are operating in, in the States and in Florida, where drug use is, is heavily criminalized, um, they're, they're working to try to push back against that tide.
0: Naloxone is a nasal spray, right? Yeah. Can you just describe how it works?
2: Yeah. So it's a nasal spray and you inject it into your nose or through a needle. I mean, it's more popular now with, with the spray. And it just reduce it uh, reverses the, the effects of the opiate. Um, so it just essentially brings you back to life. So it's a, it's a wonderful harm reduction technique um, that Justin Kunzelman uses in the film. You know, we learned a lot about harm reduction from it in general. And it's funny because there's so many other aspects to harm reduction that we knew nothing about. Um that were just such commonplace, like a seatbelt is harm reduction. Hmm. You know, you you put it on, you don't want to get into an accident, but you're still going to wear it because you may. Um, When you go to McDonald's and you see um, the lettering under the Big Mac and you see how many calories are, that's harm reduction. So for me, it was fun kind of understanding that harm reduction is really information. It's really this understanding that we know we live a life that could potentially be dangerous, and we take chances. But how do you live that life? But at the same time, you know, be comfortable with the decisions you make to reduce some of those harms. Hmm. And yeah,
0: how did you meet Justin? And and how does compassion and empathy sort of factor into his his work?
1: Uh, We were doing research, and you know, one of the producers found Justin and his group um, online. He was really active in sounding the alarm about the overdose crisis that was happening. He himself is, is in recovery and he's really passionate about evidence-based approaches. He just couldn't. He was sick and tired of seeing kind of these useless policies uh, being implemented and people who had never had experience using drugs, talking about policies. So he really stuck his neck out and and he was doing illegal needle exchange out of the back of his trunk. Like he's just on the ground doing what needed to be done if, if the government wasn't going to do it. Um, and for him, it's all about, you know, compassion and harm reduction go hand in hand. So he's all about, again, meeting people where they're at. And if they want to keep using, it's about responding to that in a compassionate and realistic way. It's like you're going to keep using, okay, I'm just going to help you do so in a way that it's not going to result in you dying.
0: Is that legal uh, needle exchange? That's like, what would be the sentence for something like that? That's a, if that's a crime. Like, well, that's uh, a real risk he's taking, right?
1: It totally, it totally is. And and only very recently has the state of Florida um, committed to expanding. There was one legal syringe exchange that we went to in Miami, and now they're maybe going to open a second one. Like, they're still still in this mindset where we were, you know, here in Canada decades ago. They're they're sort of thinking of needle exchange as this radical thing. And it really is not the sentence for something like doing a legal syringe exchange. I I would imagine it's way out of proportion than what it, you know, needs to be. But yeah, he was facing criminalization for sure.
2: Yeah, it's really a lot of the politicians who have an issue with it. If you talk to even the police... Um, they don't have an issue with it. most of them don't and and I found that really interesting. It's a lot of the Republican kind of senators and, and and congressmen who just look at drug use as this old drug war mentality and just say no and and this idea of harm reduction and needle exchange and safe consumption sites um, are just this terrible thing and it's crazy because it's evidence-based ideas and you're seeing it in Ontario like Doug Ford is avidly against this stuff as well. And I feel like it's so hypocritical considering his brother was, you know, someone who had a lot of problems with substances.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, I guess, kind of close out our conversation by talking a little bit about Canada. We obviously just had a federal election. We have a minority parliament now. We've legalized marijuana. You talked about your experience in in Sault Ste. Marie. I'm just wondering how Canada is doing when it comes to drug policy.
2: I think... (sighs) When it comes to cannabis, I think better than a lot of places in the world. I, I When it comes to harm reduction and decrim and these ideas, I don't think that well. I feel like we could really do a lot to get rid of this idea that, um, you know, the old drug war mentality is, is still quite prevalent. And I feel, I don't know, Rachel, how do you want to answer that? I mean, you're a journalist who talks about a lot of this stuff. And for me, being on the ground and making a lot of these documentaries, I kind of feel... Like, we're no better off than America or a lot of these places that still suck. We also, frankly, I think, tend to follow a lot of what the U.S. does. And they're the worst kind of um, people, government, for perpetuating the drug war. And we just kind of follow suit with them. So um, to answer your question, not very well.
1: Yeah, I think— You know, certainly, you've seen a huge difference um, between what the liberals have done versus what the former conservative government did in fighting uh, the opening of supervised consumption sites and um, really taking a tough on crime approach. You've seen the liberals, especially under former health minister Jane Philpott, really embrace a lot of harm reduction in terms of easing the restrictions around uh, opening supervised consumption sites, uh, making naloxone more readily available, suboxone, all of these things, but up until a point. When we're talking about decriminalization, you have countless health experts and harm reduction advocates talking about how it's great that you're embracing these harm reduction approaches, but it can only go so far unless you decriminalize. And Justin Trudeau has been adamant that, yes, we legalized cannabis, but no, no, we're not going to talk about decriminalizing at this point. So, I mean, I think a lot of people are frustrated at this, this notion that we've legalized cannabis to help deal with the black market, help address public health concerns, but that's not been applied consistency when it comes to other drugs. And obviously, there's a financial incentive at play. But I think a lot of people are frustrated that Canada's really uh, scared of, of jumping jumping in all the way.
0: Do you think the, uh, the NDP or the Greens or maybe the bloc will push him in a more liberal direction?
1: I think even within the Liberal Party, you have backbench MPs. You have uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who put forward the bill uh, at the end of the last parliament to decriminalize um, small possession of of drugs. So even within the Liberal Party, you have people pushing for that, and certainly the NDP and the Greens had part in in their platform specifically to to decriminalize and support safe supply. So I think, yeah, the NDP and the Greens want a public health emergency. They want decriminalization. So I think that these are ongoing things that we're going to have to contend with, especially because of the fact that overdose death rates are continuing to rise. It's a huge, it's a huge problem.
2: Yeah, and I think you mentioned a good point there, the safe supply. I think when you look at why people are dying, it's not necessarily because they're doing drugs. It's because they're doing illegal black market drugs with yeah. fentanyl in it. And if you consider all the regulations you have with alcohol, can you imagine if you there were no regulations for alcohol and you have to buy moonshine on the street that could make you go blind, um, people would freak out. So with drugs, it's the same thing. You know, if you're doing heroin or you're doing crack or you're doing a drug with fentanyl in it, um, there's no regulation around it. So, And we know that people are going to use drugs anyway. So this idea that you're going to eradicate the idea of doing drugs and, and people are just going to say, no, it's crazy. So it's just, you know, making a decision. And that's kind of what Portugal did. It's, you know, they decided to say, you know what, There's other problems associated with decrimming, but if people are guilty of crimes, we'll catch them for something else, not drug use. And I think if we could, you know, at least approach an idea like that, less people would die.
0: Well, you both left us uh, with a lot to think about. And I want to thank you both so much for coming in today. Thanks Thanks for having us. us. And that's the podcast. Rat Park is streaming now on Crave, so check it out liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and better yet, tell a friend. Let us know what you think of the film in this episode by writing to us at ondocs at tvo.org and follow me on Twitter at Colin Ellis 81. Thanks to producers Sean Braganza and Matthew O'Mara, and production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell. Kathy Vay is executive producer for Digital. We'll catch you at the next screening.